The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. For the moment, America and Iran have stepped back from the brink. The killing of Qasem Soleimani by an American drone on January the 3rd threatened to bring the two countries closer to war than at any time since the hostage crisis in 1979. Iran swore to take revenge, but its retaliatory missile strikes on two American bases in Iraq caused no deaths. Statements on both sides have emphasized de-escalation. The fact that we have this great military and equipment, however, does not mean we have to use it. We do not want to use it. But the crisis isn't over. On January the 10th, America announced new sanctions against Iran. The president has been very clear we will continue to apply economic sanctions until Iran stops its terrorist activities and commit that it will never have nuclear weapons. Iran has resumed its enrichment of uranium beyond the limits set by the 2015 nuclear deal abandoned by America, and its generals avowing harsher revenge. Meanwhile, Western intelligence sources now believe that a Ukrainian airliner that crashed near Tehran on January the 8th was downed by an Iranian anti-aircraft weapon. Tehran contests this. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, was America's killing of Iran's top general a masterstroke or madness? My guest has spent a career on the front line of American diplomacy in the Middle East. Ryan Crocker has served as United States ambassador to Iraq, to Syria, to Lebanon and Kuwait. He was appointed by both Democratic and Republican presidents. George W. Bush called him America's Lawrence of Arabia. He's currently diplomat in residence at Princeton University. Ambassador Crocker, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for having me. So having witnessed the casualties of Iranian-backed forces as ambassador in your time in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, what was your initial response when you heard of the death of General Soleimani? My initial response was, we finally got him. It was a highly satisfying moment, I have to tell you. That initial reaction was followed almost immediately by, now what? That taking a figure such as Soleimani off the table has repercussions, obviously. And I hoped right from the start that the Trump administration had thought long and deeply about this, Killing General Soleimani does not end the war with Iran. Uh, It accelerates it, potentially. And are we ready? Have we thought through the next two, three, four, half dozen moves? Have we considered what Iran's options will be? And how do we protect against it? How do we counter it? It's a multidimensional chess game. And I was not sure from the beginning that we had the strategy that we needed behind it. Let me just stay for a moment on that dramatic development. Did you feel, well, this is vindication, I think is a word you've used writing about this, for hundreds of American lives. He's taken 
over the years. And oh, was there, is there any part of you that thought, gosh, that having to resort to basically a killing, some call it an assassination, I know that's uh, controversial, that that is in itself somewhat dubious? I think perspective is important. My uh, career took me to places where the Islamic Republic of Iran was, was very active. Beirut, early 1980s. Uh, this was a time, of course, when uh, the new Islamic Republic was in an existential struggle with Iraq. They were, they were fighting for their very existence. Yet they had the, uh, the time and the uh, capability uh, to go after us in Beirut in 1983. I was uh, a survivor of the Iranian-backed bombing of the American embassy in Beirut in April. I was still in Beirut when the Marine barracks blew up in October of that year. Uh, both attacks brought to us by the Islamic Republic, not by Soleimani, uh, he was still in school at the time, but by his predecessors, working closely with Syria. So you've you got to have the backstory on this, and the administration has to understand they are in a long war. This is a clearly a dramatic development, uh, but it, it is uh, hardly one and done. You used the word war there. Is that to your mind, an accurate description of this conflict that one's already in a war situation between America and Iran? I'm not a political scientist, uh, uh, nor am I a philosopher. I, I would say, practically speaking, a war is what happens when the adversary is killing your people. And we have seen that from the Islamic Republic now for, as I said, for quite some time, since the early 1980s. So, Another phase of it, of course, was Iraq. I was ambassador there during the surge, 2007-2009. The uh, Iranians working with the Iraqi Shia proto-militias killed hundreds of our troopers, as well as other coalition uh, soldiers. So you can parse definitions. Uh, to me, it's pretty basic. If uh, you got somebody out there uh, killing your guys and gals, uh, then you're in a war. So today, America has announced new sanctions what do they hope to achieve, and, and what's your general view of the sanctions route? Well, sanctions are a weapon of choice, uh, particularly, I think, by uh, we here in the United States and over the last few decades. If you can't think of anything else to do, use sanctions. Sometimes they work. If you have a definition of what working is, I would say, for example, in the case of Iran, that the economic sanctions uh, we imposed, and this was not by the Trump administration, incidentally, is what brought them to the table in the first place for the, uh, the nuclear negotiations. And again, with respect to Iran, uh, we've seen the demonstrations, we've seen the protests uh, in the streets of Tehran and other major cities uh, by people who feel that their good life uh, isn't coming to them because of the sad state of the Iranian economy. So sanctions can impel policy changes but as always, you've, you've got to ask, and it's a genuine question for me, what is the goal the administration seeks? Changes in Iranian policy through the application of painful sanctions, or is it about regime change? And those are fundamental questions that um, I, I don't think we've really seen this administration answer. You, you mentioned 
protests in Tehran. But of course, the big protest is we have been against America and Israel for the killing of General Soleimani and the suspected involvement of Israel to some degree in gathering that intelligence. But is it possible to see this now as being towards the end of closing a cycle in which the Iranians then fired rockets back at American targets, but somewhat half-heartedly, there is talk of of this being an attempt to avoid escalation. Is that the way you read it? It's it's going to be very complicated. Look, uh, uh, it's not a board game. Uh, Those were ballistic missiles. They carry a much larger warhead than the basically the old Russian Katusha rockets that uh, the militias have used in Iraq. Uh, That they killed no one? Uh, Well, I think we can all be thankful that is the case. Could they have? Yes, indeed, they could have. These are, again, they're ballistic missiles. They are far more accurate. They carry a much larger warhead. And they came from Iran. So one might say the United States moved to a new level through killing Qasem Soleimani, The Iranians have responded in kind. Um, These were missiles launched by Iran, and they were qualitatively different than what we've had to confront before. So is it over? Oh, no, it is not over. Um, We have all hit the pause button. But this fight's been going on for for years and years, and I think it's going to go on for a good bit of time more. Uh, Anyone who wants to cross this off their checklist, I think, is going to be making a mistake. From an American perspective, what do you think that the killing of Soleimani achieved? Has it reestablished that idea of deterrence? Or do you think it was more of an opportunity or an opportunist desire to take out a great enemy as seen by Washington in the Middle East? Which is it? We have to see what the long game of the administration might be, if they even have one. Uh, and that is of increasing concern. I, I don't feel that I have a, any clearer answer after the president's statement uh, on the uh, killing and the uh, Iranian retaliation. So what does it all mean? Uh, well, it, it, it means in part um, how we define it, and I, I just haven't seen that definition. In terms of its impact, it's worth taking a second on that. Qasem Soleimani was, was many things, uh, almost a unique individual. Uh, nobody is irreplaceable, we all say, uh, but he may be pretty close. And I've, I've seen this myself. I mean, he's been doing this for two decades at least, and uh, he was uh, very much a micromanager on these things. As I saw in Iraq, he, uh, uh, he doesn't give his subordinates a lot of latitude. So the impact on Iran, uh, I think, is still to be measured. Uh, this took a major player off the field, they're not going to be able to replace him quickly. What does that mean? Command and control, particularly with respect to the militias. Uh, His successor is not going to have his clout with Hezbollah, with Kitab Hezbollah, uh, Saab al-Haq in Iraq. So we will see. I I think you might start to see some freelancing by these groups that Iran uh, itself is going to be unable to control. Do you think any other president that you've served under would have ordered this killing? Well, it, it's a moot point. Uh, I, I was in Iraq as ambassador for two years, 2007, 2009. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, General Soleimani never visited Iraq during that time. And, and the reason he didn't 
is because he feared that the uh, George W. Bush administration would target him if he was uh, found by us inside Iraq's borders. So clearly he thought uh, that his uh, life might be at risk from us. Again, it's a moot point because he never surfaced in Iraq. Uh, I, I would think very much that we would have been looking for any sign that he did. Would uh, George W. Bush have pulled the trigger? You know, that, that becomes hypothetical, I, I can't say. Uh, but again, Soleimani certainly considered that a possibility. You've written this week about the next phase possibly being something you call escalation dominance. And if we look at what that might look like from Iran's perspective, what do you think that we could be looking at here? Is it attacks against regional allies? Is it back to assaults on tanker traffic in the Gulf, which had obviously happened before, was part of the previous uh, escalation? or more like direct attacks on United States installations? What worries you most? Taking, a, again, a lesson from the missile attack that the Iranians did launch, I mean, the message there is we can hit you wherever you are in the region. I think, again, that uh, if the administration hasn't already done so, they need to be going through, as I said earlier, you know, so what are the targets that Iran might uh, seek to hit. We have forces up and down the Gulf. We need to look at their vulnerability, and we need to look at our relationships with the countries that host them. Look, in, in my view, a successful strategy against an adversary as uh, complex as uh, Iran is requires several things. It, it requires long-term strategic patience. The war didn't start yesterday, and it's not going to be over tomorrow. We, we have to have the patience and the resolve to, to stay along course. The second thing, of course, is having people to develop and then implement your strategy. Can't be done entirely from the West Wing of the White House. I mean, you've got to have a cadre of folks in, um, in the State Department, in the Defense Department, in the National Security Council, in the intelligence agencies who know the region and know how this stuff works. And, and the third thing is you need allies. We cannot and should not try to do this by ourselves. Where are our allies that, that really count? Well, they're in the region, most of the Arab states uh, and, and Israel, and they're in Europe. Uh, so unfortunately, on all three counts, I, I don't see a lot of effort going into a long-term strategy, a recognition that this is a long war, that we need others with us, and that we need people to develop, tweak, implement a, a long-term strategy. How do you read the situation in Tehran and the Iranian leadership itself? The country's generals are vowing harsher revenge. Uh, militiamen trained by Soleimani have vowed to rid the region of Americans. Obviously, some of that is heated rhetoric, and, and that is something that often emanates uh, from Tehran anyway. But how centralized do you believe Iranian power to be on the question of what retaliation should look like? Iran is the most complex political society in a complex region, and we Americans are in a particularly poor position to understand it. We haven't been on the ground officially in Tehran since the revolution, since 1979. So with all the analysis, uh, there needs to come a good bit of humility and uh, uh, not to think we know more than we do. In terms of Iranian decision-making, there are a couple of things that are clear. First, it really is complex. I mean, there are parallel structures. You, you have a, 
the government of Iran headed by the elected president, and you have a shadow government that is headed by the um, supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, whose uh, primary implementer uh, for the, uh, the, the shadow side was Soleimani. So now he's gone. Who, who is making the recommendations? Um, who is working with the militias? Who is the voice of Iran in the ears of Iranian proxies? Not clear. And uh, again, as this moves forward, we should be very alert to uh, unintended consequences, as it were. These, these militias, and perhaps some within Iran, taking matters into their own hands. Uh, so again, it's going to be a long, complex process. We've seen calls from European leaders for keeping a track to diplomacy open, to, to bringing this back away from the sphere of conflict attack and counterattack, from World War to George Orr. But Iran has spurned Mr. Trump's call for fresh talks. Mr. Trump has pulled out of the nuclear deal, arguing for a different one. Do you see any way of on-ramping these talks again? It, it starts, I think, with some alliance building, uh, starting with Europe. Uh, the Europeans, uh, as I understand it, were not informed in, in advance of the strike or of an intent on our part to, uh, to kill Soleimani if we had the, uh, we had the opportunity. Uh, so we, we've got to look at this through that lens as well. Clearly, under the Trump administration, our ties with Europe have, have weakened with NATO. Uh, interesting that he referred to a much larger NATO role now in Iraq. I, I don't know what that means. We'll, we'll have to see. But I, I think moving forward, uh, we've got to be careful to ensure that we are moving in coordination with our allies regionally and internationally. And in the case of Iran, internationally means largely Europe. And, and I would say here, too, it's not all up to us. Uh, the Europeans have got to decide where they stand. You know, they have lost troopers to um, actions that were orchestrated by Soleimani. Certainly Britain has. What do you think of the British response? Are you suggesting it's lukewarm? Well, yes, very much. Uh, but I think it was a good measure to have the uh, foreign secretary come visit us. Um, I don't know what the substance of the talks were, but the, the symbolism right after the attack, uh, I think, is, is important. We all got to make some choices here. Uh, uh, and the Europeans... When you look at some of the ongoing efforts there, the uh, operation we stood up in the Gulf after the strikes on um, tankers moving through the Straits of Hormoz, well, the only European country that stepped up to that was Britain. The others have said, oh, not us, even though we're totally dependent on oil from the Gulf. So again, it's up to this administration here to do much more outreach than they have so far to our traditional allies. But it's also up to our traditional allies to say, hey, we're, we're with you on this stuff. Here are our suggestions, and here's what we're prepared to do. But where we are right now, because I don't think either side, the European or the American side, are um, being as serious as they should be about the need for a very strong transatlantic relationship. Let's turn, if we could, to the impact on Iraq, where the Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi has today asked for the US to decide the mechanism for troop withdrawal following a vote to that end in the Iraqi parliament earlier in the week. Do you think that this is the beginning of the end of America's military presence in Iraq? Again, we're going to have to see how this plays out over time. And I think this would be you know, a moment to 
hit the pause button uh, on this issue as well. Uh, clearly, our presence in Iraq has been something the Iraqis wanted, indeed were desperate for, back in the summer of 2014 when Islamic State surged through much of the country. The uh, uh, Iraqis, certainly the prime minister, know that in the absence of any American military presence, that is to the advantage of, uh, again, Islamic State. So, again, it's time to sit down and reflect here, both um, in Washington and in uh, Baghdad as, as we move forward. But how seriously do you take that vote? Because you a lot of people in the outside world. The Iraqi parliament votes this way. What weight do you give that? Now, you can then, of course, talk about you know, who's representing whom really in the interests of many of those in the Iraq parliament. But what status do you give it and its decision? It's, as I understand the uh, Iraqi process, it is a non-binding resolution. Power to, uh, to order such things it does not rest on the legislature. It's an executive function. So it is an expression of what exactly? Uh, you know, uh, basically all Sunni and Kurdish legislators boycotted that session. So the, the government is going to have to be very careful that uh, they not take steps that it will further divide an already badly divided country, but even more importantly, that will weaken the capacity of uh, Iraq, again, to ensure that Islamic State does not reemerge, because that is another war that is not over. Uh, you know, I went through that with al-Qaeda in Iraq. Islamic State now is underground. They will seize every opportunity they can get to come back, and that is again why we, you in Europe, uh, the Iraqis themselves, other regional states, need to take a deep breath, sit down, and think long term. And what about the impact on Iraq itself, caught in the middle to an extent here? America now threatening sanctions on a country. It's spent billions of dollars and thousands of American lives trying to build up. When you look at that, and as, as someone who, who was at the, the sharp end of that in your diplomatic career, doesn't it strike you as odd or even you know, rather kind of sad waste of of time, of lives, and of immense resource. Clearly here, this should not be about Iraq. Uh, we will be doing Iran's work for them if we treat Iraq as an adversarial power. It just pushes them farther and deeper into an Iranian embrace. So we need allies, probably none more centrally than Iraq itself. Like everything else, it's imperfect, but uh, it really is, as I think you would say in London, an own goal if we deliberately antagonize the Iraqis and uh, sanction them further, it will spur their efforts uh, to do something that thus far I don't think they really want to do, which is ask us to leave. Iraq is suffering through a great deal, and it, it has been. We've got a leadership that I think wants to move it to, to a, a place of peace and prosperity. Let's work with them on this and let us not talk about them as basically an adversary state that we're going to sanction. Let's perhaps look at the one of the, the biggest issues that follows from everything that's going on, and that's consequences for the nuclear program that Iran has been pursuing. Doesn't the announcement from Tehran on January the 5th that it will no longer abide by enrichment restrictions on uranium and uh, everything that, that follows from that suggest that deterrence has already failed. The nuclear question is an important one, obviously. I am sorry that we withdrew from the JCPOA. 
again, a, a flawed agreement, but uh, certainly, I think, made the world a safer place. Now, again, the Iranians need to think through what their objectives are here, what they need to do and what they need not to do. And I, I would think from an Iranian perspective to say that deal is over and we're moving to 20% enrichment or anything like it would be a, an extremely bad move on their part because it's going to alienate the rest of the world and turn this back to a conversation on Iran as potential nuclear threat. Uh, so it will do them no good whatsoever uh, if they continue to pursue an open violation of the uh, JCPOA. It, it, it will lose, lose them whatever support they might have in Europe, for starters. But is there any way to stop Iran getting nuclear weapons short of a large bombing campaign, which would then lead to another round of escalation of French foreign minister was suggesting Iran could have nuclear weapons in a couple of years today. Yeah, you know, I, I remember conversations uh, going back, say, a decade and a half, the early going in, in Iraq, in which policy pundits or even policy practitioners were saying exactly the same thing. They could have it in a couple of years, uh, a decade and a half ago. Uh, the important point here, though, I think, is getting a bomb in Iran is not a question so much of getting the materials to make a bomb. It's the knowledge. And I would say that uh, Iran has that capacity right now. So whatever you're going to do to destroy physical things, uh, that's not going to help you with the core problem, uh, which is they uh, most probably have scientists in Iran who, who know how to do this. So Iran is a nuclear power, something none of us want to see. I am not sure the, the path of military confrontation is the best way to avoid it. What do you think the chances are then for Donald Trump's own outlook in the 2020 White House race? Could he become a war president and effectively spin this in his favor, showing his strength and decisiveness? Or if it rumbles on and has consequences that were not intended or desirable, could it become his own endless war? All of the above. And again, we're, we're, he and I think the country is, is conflicted on this. Uh, he, he ran and won in part on getting the United States out of wars, very popular with his base. Well, now he's um, trying to look uh, tough, also popular with his base, while not getting back into the quicksands of endless wars, as you put it. Uh, how well will he do at that? We'll see. If uh, there are further escalations, if the Iranians have a, another go at us that require some kind of forceful response. How he handles that is is going to be pretty key, and it is, again, pretty complicated. I watched his, uh, his statement, and what I, I noted, uh, several things, but one of them, it was as though he were a very relieved president, that he could say, okay, uh, we, we killed Soleimani, uh, they responded with missile fire that didn't hurt anybody, uh, they've said they're done, and whew, boy, am I glad that's the case, so so are we. That is going to be read in different ways in Tehran, but it's also going to be read different ways in his constituency as, as he looks to the election. I just noticed you've issued a number of warnings, actually, throughout the interview as we come towards the close. Do you think he's listening to any of these warnings, whether issued by 
someone like you with immense experience uh, in the region, but by no means only dovish in your outlook about Iran. We talk about it almost as if it's only Donald Trump making these calls. Do you think he, he is receiving information that he takes seriously? Uh, I, I don't really know what the decision-making dynamics are in this administration. I do know that he's got some very smart people around him, uh, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, national security advisor. So he has put people in place who kind of know how to do this stuff and and uh, how to talk about it. Uh, whether he, he listens and is guided by them or not, I don't have the ability to look behind that particular curtain. I'll finish with the question, if I could, uh, which is our economist asks theme and our head scratcher, really, I, su- I suppose, about this whole week and everything that will flow from it. Was the killing of Qasem Soleimani by an American drone, a masterstroke, or was it madness? That will be a question for the, uh, the, the coming months and years to decide. I think that removing him, killing him, put a huge kink in the Iranian ability to project its power through proxies outside of the country. Let's see what happens in, in, in Lebanon and in Syria, uh, as well as in Iraq. And since he had primary responsibility for internal security in Iran after the 2009 protests, let's see what happens in Iran as well. Again, from my perspective, am, you know, am I glad he's dead? Oh, yes, I am. Not, not just for vindication, but also for future capabilities to operate against us and our friends. Uh, but how that will play out in the end depends on not what the administration has done, but what they do next. Ambassador Ryan Crocker, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and joining us today. Thank you. We want to know what you think too. In a momentous week, did you share the ambassador's relief on hearing of the death of the Iranian general? Will President Trump's escalation dominance pay off or will Iran become his own endless war? Write to us, radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And here at The Economist, we followed this story from so many angles in our coverage. So as the situation continues to unfold, do subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer and have a look at what we make of it. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.